When we come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read of the crucifixion, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But all of these Gospels give us their perspective through different lenses. So if you were ever to read all of the Gospels at the end of Christ's life, what you would find is that they do not record the same events the same way. And this is also true of the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. The four Gospels somehow emphasize different things. And so when you read all four accounts, if you were to do that, what you would find is that there are differing details that are spotlighted in the different Gospels. For example, there are a different number of angels that meet the women when they come to the tomb. There's also kind of a different sequence as well of uh, who Jesus appeared to and when he appeared to them. There's different locations as well that are emphasized in Galilee, sometimes in Jerusalem. It seems as though each gospel writer has his own take on how he wants to present the appearance of Christ after his resurrection. One of the goals often in Western mindsets, those of us who live in the West, is not to allow those tensions to exist, and we try to harmonize them. But there are certain events that's difficult to harmonize because the authenticity of the accounts themselves is how an individual saw the situation in their own perspective. So when you read the account of someone, let's say, that witnessed an accident out on the road, and as they interview this, uh, the different people, they will have their own perspective on what happened. Oh, he rolled through a stop sign, right? Or, no, he was going too fast. Or uh, you might say, no, this individual didn't see this individual coming. In other words, all of these are accurate, but depending upon the perspective of the individual, they'll emphasize certain things maybe that other people didn't. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So when you read the Gospels, each Gospel writer will give a, an account of the appearance of Jesus, but they're only really doing it from their own perspective. And so as they do so, they're not worried about trying to harmonize with the other perspectives because, quite frankly, the other gospel accounts didn't exist at that time. So it's not like they are comparing notes, right? So just like a typical eyewitness has a different emphasis, there is actually, that's actually good news because if all of them lined up side by side and emphasized all the same thing, you would go, there's some collusion that's going on here. But rather, they stand as individuals, and they give to us an account that overlap each other. And so when we go to look for historical verification of certain things from the Gospels, what we need to understand is these Gospels weren't written to be melded together into one account. They need to stand as their own because they're emphasizing their own unique perspective. Now, having said that, each gospel writer is introducing to us something about the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus 
that is kind of putting a capstone on all of the things that we have been saying in this series called Curator. So just by way of reminder, we began talking about the temptation of Jesus. We talked a little bit about the transfiguration of Jesus. Then the warnings that Jesus gave that group of people living in the first century of the power of the Roman Empire and what they were going to do to Jerusalem if there was rebellion. The parables of Jesus, which were teaching tools. Uh, we talked a little bit about the different perspectives of the death of Jesus from the gospel writer. And then the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Last week we talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And today we are talking about the appearances of Jesus. Now, in your liturgy, I've listed all the different occurrences so that you kind of know there's an abundance of information there on the appearances of Jesus. We're not looking at all that. We're just going to concentrate on a couple of different things this morning. And if you want to take the time to read those cross-references, you can. So here's what I'm going to emphasize this morning over the next few minutes. I want to make a few observations. And then I want to just show you how I put the occurrences together in kind of a chart form. And then I want to ask the question, well, what is the objective of these appearances in the Gospels? What are they trying to accomplish? So let's make some observations, first of all. So when you look at the accounts of the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, the first thing to observe when you read these is they do not go into a lot of detail about the resurrection itself. So when you read the Gospels, there's a lot more detail about the crucifixion of Jesus actually than the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a reason for that. The reason is there was no one in the tomb with Jesus to actually observe when he rose from the dead. So there is no first-hand account here of saying, okay, this is what happened. This is how Jesus rose from the dead and how he laid aside the linen covering and all that type of thing. There were no disciples in the tomb. So all we're left with is really the appearances after the fact. Now, because that is true, what we understand is it's difficult, even in the appearances of Jesus, to describe it accurately. So when you read these accounts, you'll see that while some people recognized Jesus, other people did not recognize him until he spoke and they recognized his voice, or until there was this moment like the disciples on the Emmaus Road where he broke bread and he offered it to them and across the dinner table their eyes are open. And I said last week that we're not real sure what a resurrected body looks like. So this is a new phenomenon for human experience. Even though Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11, that was a resuscitation. Are you following what I'm saying? He will die again. What does actual resurrection look like? And when individuals meet up with the resurrected Jesus, there's a recognition of some things, the scars from the crucifixion, but how do you describe that? So imagine with me, a thousand years ago, you tell someone, you're able to travel back in time, and you tell someone, 
I want you to describe to people around you how the internet works. And they'll go, the inner what? What are you talking about? It's, uh, it, 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 there's no, no way to even use language. So in other words, to describe to people from ancient history a phenomenon like, do you know you'll have a device that you can hold in your hand and you can plug in a search device and you can bring up any topic in the world and you will be able to search the internet from information all around the globe. They would think that you are nuts, right? Just like people never envisioned the invention of a car or planes or different things like that. So when we ask people to describe something that they've never experienced before, we're asking them to do something impossible. And so when these writers are trying to describe what they saw in the resurrection of Jesus, the only thing that they can say is, some things are the same, but some things are different. And because of that, we really don't know how to communicate this accurately to those that will come later. Maybe the best thing to understand here is the one that we encounter through the resurrection of Christ is the one that is the promise of filling everything everywhere. And maybe the appearances of Jesus is a reminder that we no longer live in a closed system of death, that there is the possibility of new life. And Jesus is showing that he has new life. So the gospel writers are more descriptive about what they experience than explanatory of what has actually happened in the resurrection. Secondly, in the gospel, there are several accounts of resuscitation, but resurrection opens a whole new world. Thirdly, in order to make this reality known, there's a period of time. So after Jesus comes back to life, but before he ascends into heaven, and that's the last message I'll give in this series next Sunday morning, the ascension of Christ. What is that all about? There's a window of 40 days. And these 40 days is a time for different people to experience different things. Now, in total, there are some things that I think that stand out here. When they tell their account of seeing Jesus, it's pretty convincing that they experienced something. Sometimes people will try to say, oh, they're hallucinatory. They saw something that wasn't real. Over a course of 40 days, by 500 people in different locations at different times during the days in different settings. Are you following what I'm saying? It's not the same. It's not like some magic act occurred and somebody fooled a bunch of people. No, the appearances are pretty convicting, uh, convincing rather. But these convincing proofs are retained only by those first century people. In other words, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke the writer, and we'll see this next week as we close this series, he uses this word translated, he appeared giving them many convincing proofs. Okay, but we don't have the opportunity to do that. So what is a convincing proof to the first century? They saw Jesus over a period of 40 days only becomes a compelling testimony to us. Are you following what I'm saying? So 
Think about any historical situation. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, I only say that because my son Brent is in Washington, D.C. this weekend, so he would have, he'd have the opportunity to see the Washington Memorial or the Lincoln Memorial. And if you ask the question, how do you even know George Washington or Abraham Lincoln lived? How do you prove that? It's not like you have firsthand experience, right? You don't have firsthand experience on that. The only thing you have available to you are the testimonies of other people who have had the experience. That's what we have in the Gospels. We have the testimonies of those who saw Jesus. Now, that troubles people sometimes because we live in a certainty-obsessed culture. Before I believe it, I want certainty. I want full proof. Well, good luck with that. That's why it's called faith, okay? We live a life of faith, but it's built on credible testimony or convincing testimony that is recorded in the Gospels. When you look at this, what's amazing is Jesus appears to many different kinds of people. It wasn't just the 12 disciples. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about appearing to a bunch of different people at a, a bunch of different places and times. And these individuals all had one thing in common. They were not expecting Jesus to be alive. To every one of them, it was a surprise that Jesus is alive. And that's why... Each of them needs to have their own moment in time, like Thomas. So we read out of John chapter 20 a moment ago, where Thomas says, I am not going to believe that Jesus is alive unless I can take my finger and put it into the nail scars in his hands and in his side. But what we find is that as he appears to Thomas, that's the second time he has appeared to his disciples. So they already know. They saw him. Thomas wasn't present. Thomas needs that verification in his own heart that Jesus is alive. So Jesus makes a return trip, right? And he meets with the disciples. And then he says to Thomas, here, Thomas, put your hand in my hand. Put your hand in my side. And what we find is Thomas was not expecting that. If Thomas was a betting man, he would have pushed all his chips in and said, I think that Jesus is not alive. But when he realizes that Jesus is alive, what does he do? He boldly confesses, my Lord and my God. Because something finally convinced him. He had this experience, this moment. And so lastly, his appearances stop after the ascension. So what's fascinating and what's difficult for individuals like you and me is we can't have a first-hand encounter with Jesus like those in the first century did. So we need something else, I guess, if we're going to believe, if we're going to have faith. And I would suggest that we all have, in various ways, or at various times in our life, or at a particular episode in our life where our heart has opened and Jesus has met us in 
his, his own unique way for our particular. For those of you who have faith, there was a time where it made sense to you. And when it made sense to you, it was because of something that happened inside you. That is, there was something that touched your heart, that maybe it was something that you read, maybe it was something that you heard, maybe it was something that you experienced. And while you don't have the opportunity to have a first-hand encounter like those in the first century, you could sing that ancient, uh, not ancient, that old hymn, that old hymn. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. In other words, I know, I know there is something that has happened inside me. Have I been fooled? Have I been tricked? Um, but I think all of us know that while we can be fooled or tricked, there's sometimes an experience that we have that convinces us that there is a God that loves us, and he shows it to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So you have your own testimony is what I'm trying to say. And it's convincing to you. And we are all different kinds of people. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. We are different ages, that type of thing. And just like in the first century, God comes to us in a variety of ways, in a variety of settings. And it's in those moments that we believe and maybe we weren't expecting that. Maybe it came as a surprise. Maybe God met us in a way that we go, I didn't see that coming, right? And then lastly, you know, God doesn't continue to do that all the time. So those moments that we have come and they go, but they're enough for us to remember. And when we remember them, it enables us to continue to believe and continue to move forward in our life. Okay, second, from observations to occurrences. Now, in your liturgy is a list of every appearance of Jesus in the Gospels. How do you make sense of all that? And I know it's small, but all I want to kind of show by this chart is there are appearances that happened on Resurrection Sunday, and there are about half of the appearances that actually occur on the day of the resurrection. There are occurrences that happen later, and there are occurrences that happen over a course of 40 days. So when you look at the gospel accounts, Mary Magdalene, some of the other women, Simon Peter, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road all have these encounters with Jesus. The first encounter the disciples had is when Jesus comes and appears to them, and they are in hiding. Uh, they're afraid because Jesus has been crucified. Are we next, right? Are they going to come after us? And so they're locked away in hiding, and Jesus comes to them. Thomas is not present. We're told in the passage I read earlier that Thomas comes and meets with the disciples. It's eight days later, and Jesus appears again and tells Thomas, feel the scars in my hand and my side. Now, the other appearances uh, occur over the next several weeks. And as they occur over the next several weeks, 
If you read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, it gives an account that says, basically, over this period of time, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. And then finally, on the last day, the 40th day, what we find is the last, this last encounter that Jesus has, and even I need my glasses on that last box here, the disciples, possibly in Jerusalem before Uh, He led them out to the Mount of Olives and gives to them the Great Commission, which is in Acts chapter 1. He appears to them and he says, wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. So these encounters that these individuals have, these different occurrences, this helps us to understand there's a bulk of them on Resurrection Sunday There are some that happen over the next few weeks. And finally, on the 40th day, that symbolic number that keeps occurring in the scripture, this 40th day of new opportunity, this 40th day of new life breaking into an old world, he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, prior to that, what we find is in this small gathering that he has with his disciples, He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And that's what we read as well in John chapter 20. So Mary hears this angel giving testimony. He's not here, he's risen. And then he begins to appear to all these individuals and to this group that is then going to lead the church into the future. They wait and they receive the Holy Spirit. So What are the objectives of all these appearances of Jesus? Now, this is my take. You could probably add some others to this, um, but here's how I see it. Number one, first and foremost, it's a declaration of the defeat of death. Isn't it interesting that the first words that are recorded to the women who are coming to embalm the body at the tomb is... Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why are you seeking uh, the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. So here's this proclamation of promise. Jesus has said on several occasions in his teaching ministry, the Son of Man must be crucified, and after three days he will rise again. And here's the promise It came true. It came true. The tomb is empty. The tomb does not hold the body of Jesus. He is here. He is alive. Now that is more than just simply, he won. Sometimes Easter becomes, Jesus won. He accomplished death. But what really is important to understand is it's the entire defeat of death itself. And that is our great hope. Yes, we will die like Lazarus died again after he was resuscitated. However, there is a promise that this life is not the end. It's not as though the last chapter is closed and we are annihilated somehow. There is the promise of life eternal that goes beyond this life. And here are these cluster of disciples that hear this and see it and give testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive, but the greatest proclamation that it gives to us, the greatest declaration that we can proclaim is Jesus is alive. 
Secondly, the appearances help dispel the doubts of the disciples. Now, Thomas is the most famous, but all the disciples had their doubts about Jesus being alive. And so the appearances are to give to them the convincing testimony uh, that he is alive. Thomas, probably no more than any of the other disciples, was inclined to doubt because, after all, as I mentioned earlier, how do you describe the internet to the Stone Age, right? It's something that can't possibly be understood. But what we find is that in Christ, there is the defeat of death. And finally, he, these appearances help dispel the doubts of the disciples. And it's on their testimony that it helps dispel our doubts as well. Number three, it is the defeat of the default of the human race. Now, here's what I mean. What is the first word that Jesus speaks in his appearance? Peace be to you. Peace be to you. Now, this isn't, okay, call my anxieties type of peace. Peace is shalom in the Old Testament. It's the idea that there is a new world that's available one that is able to get along with other people, one that is looking out for other people, one that is serving other people, one that is loving other people. In other words, the appearances of Jesus show the defeat of the default stance of the human experience, which is usually hate and violence. So what we find is when Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, that's more of a Christmas cliche, than it is an Easter cliche. What it is, is a pronouncement of a radical alternative in the post-resurrection world of Jesus. Because what is the message that Jesus is telling his disciples to proclaim? He says, wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then I want you to go out. I want you to tell the entire world. I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. It's been inaugurated. So our problem is we have all been groomed since we've been this high that the only way to resolve the problems in life are somehow taking it in our hand, using force, using violence, using anger, using hatred as a way of resolving this. The resurrection and appearances of Jesus dispels that myth. There is a better way forward. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. Shalom be to you. Now, can you do it on your own? No. And the appearances direct humanity, first to the disciples and then to us, that there is a new age that has begun. It is the giving of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot becomes the, how do I want to put this? We cannot become people that hold Jesus for ourselves and say Jesus is on our side. The Spirit of God goes into all the world and touches everyone in a variety of different ways. And what Jesus says to his disciples is, move into this new era that has begun with my resurrection and take the spirit with you and touch the world through my love. 
So the coming of the Holy Spirit is not just a sentiment, it's a mission. It is sending us out in different directions with the same purpose, and that is to love God and love people. Love God, love people. It's pretty simple. It's not that difficult. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we have said that over the course of this um, series, there are a lot of things to take in about the life of Jesus. Next week, we'll close that as we look at the ascension of Jesus. Each gospel writer gives to us something so that we can see Jesus in our own time and in our own way, and so we can adjust to knowing him in a new way as well. In between the time of Easter and Christ's ascension, this season of time when Jesus' first followers were offered a gracious space of 40 days to see him and to adjust to a new way of knowing him, we have that opportunity through the Holy Spirit as well. And so, do you think maybe Jesus is done appearing to people? I don't mean in the physical presence, but I think Jesus still shows up in his own way. So this is from an author, Diana Butler Bass. Uh, this was on her blog this morning. Interesting, I'm going to read it. Perhaps the heaviness of the world right now draws our attention to the wounds of Jesus. Jesus, the one we believe to be the Son of God, still bears the scars of the wounds. After death, beyond resurrection, we have a wounded God, a vulnerable God, who bears brokenness even in a spiritual body. And this is the line I love from that blog from Diana Butler Bass. Here it is. The wounded God and the wounded world touch. That's pretty cool, isn't it? The wounded God and the wounded world touch. And I want to say that's how we see Jesus all over again in our own lives. Would you stand with me, please? And we're going to close. I want to close with a quote that comes from uh, Dr. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar. It's in your liturgy. He says, we are left with the conclusion that the combination of the empty tomb and appearances of the living Jesus forms a set of circumstances which is itself both necessary and sufficient for the rise of early Christian belief. Without these phenomena, we cannot explain why this belief came into existence and took the shape it did. With them, we can explain it exactly and precisely. So his point is, if you saw the living Jesus appear to you here in 2022 in this sanctuary, you would have such excitement and motivation to go into the world and say, there is a living Savior, there is love in the world, there is the era of the Spirit where we can truly love one another and proclaim peace be to you. You'd have a lot more motivation, and so would I if we had that experience. But we have to do it by faith. So pray with me as we close. Lord, help us to live by faith, to grow in faith, to count upon the faith that we have believed at some point in our life. 
We will go through the ups and downs of the world in which we live. We will have our doubts. At times we will be disappointed. At times we wonder if you have left us, if you have forsaken us. But we look back over our shoulder and we remember that you met us at a point in time and you made a promise to us that you will never leave us nor forsake us, even when we are unable to maybe see you as clearly as what we once did. So help us, Lord God, to have faith. Help us to move forward in faith. Help us to trust the appearances of Jesus to these many witnesses that lived long ago. May they, we trust their testimony as we do other people who give testimony to other historical events and people that we take for granted. Help us, Father, to trust most of all in the message that this risen Jesus gives to us. Peace be to you. May that be our message. May that be our mission. And may that be our motivation this coming week. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us this morning, and I hope that you have a great week this coming week. God bless each and every one of you. Enjoy the day. It's beautiful out there. Take care.